Hi, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. As the world continues to be steeped with uncertainty and fear from the pandemic to our currently difficult political climate, and also to thinking about going back to work and school and just managing everyday stresses, I wanted today's podcast to be all about you. And today we're gonna be talking about the power of cognitive behavioral therapy. This is an amazing type of therapeutic set of tools that can help you manage stress, create positive change, and solve problems in your life. Make sure you stay tuned to the very end because I'm gonna give you a bunch of amazing techniques on how to conquer negative thinking and self-defeating thoughts that we're often played with, especially when we're not feeling great, when we're stressed out, when there's just so much to manage. And sometimes that leads us to feeling out of control and overwhelmed. And the wonderful thing about cognitive behavioral therapy is that it's practical, it's hands-on, you can see the impact right in the moment. And it is my favorite set of therapeutic tools to teach my patients and talk to people about. And in fact, my book, Stop Self-Sabotage, is rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy strategies. So I got a ton of questions from you guys about how you can solve problems in your life. And I wanted today's episode to be all about the techniques that you can use every day at home. Listen, there's so many people who are telling me they're experiencing depression, anxiety, alcohol and drug misuse, marital problems, eating disorders, and even severe mental illnesses. In fact, according to the World Health Organization, one in four people in the world will be affected by some type of significant psychological symptom at some point in their lives. And right now, about 450 million people are suffering from such conditions. And this means that mental health conditions are among the leading causes of ill health and disability worldwide. So I've talked a lot about why CBT is so amazing, why it works. It's been built on decades of research and clinical experience. And CBT is really all about this idea that your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors are all connected and can influence one another. So when you're feeling low, you, yes, you can change your thoughts or your actions to experience an improvement in your mood, get on with your day and live a value-based life. There's a lot of wonderful research out there about CBT and how it leads to the significant improvement in functioning and quality of life. And Recently, there's been more hype about CBT than usual. There's a number of CBT-based apps for iPhones and Androids. For example, a new digital CBT program was shown to reduce insomnia and sleep problems, according to findings published in The Lancet. And then another study that was published in JAMA showed that digital CBT can treat eating disorders and related problems. Recent studies have also shown how CBT can improve management of chronic body pain and help you in reducing depression, anxiety, trauma, ADHD, and all kinds of clinical symptoms. So I have received so many great questions in the last few days by people I engage with on social media. So instead of inviting one guest on today's show, I have invited all of you. And just for fun, so that you can get to know me a little better, today's questions will be asked by my amazing producer, Rachel, and fantastic audio engineer, Jonathan. These are the people who make me look good every week here on this podcast. So let's get started. 
Rachel, I want to go to you first. Can you tell me the first question we have from a listener that we can try to use a CBT tool with? Sure. Actually, I think this is a great way to start. It's from Patty from your Instagram. She says, how can CBT help me manage everyday stress? Well, everybody is experiencing so much stress right now. I hear people saying that it feels like a boiling point, that they're in a pressure cooker. And when we're stressed so chronically, it ends up making us feel like everyday activities are even hard to manage. So what I'm hearing from people, just like what Patty is saying, is that sometimes they're just going to be doing something very routine, like washing the dishes. But all of a sudden, that seems so overwhelming. So one of the best CBT tools for this, Patty, is to use mindfulness strategies. And sometimes people are scared of that term. What does mindfulness really mean? Does it mean that I'm meditating? I've got my legs crossed. That's not it at all. Mindfulness is any type of activity that helps to place you in the present moment. So my favorite mindfulness tool is actually just to do one thing mindfully, focusing on the present without taking my thoughts into the future or worrying about the mistakes of the past. And I do this every morning with how I make my coffee. Now, I am a avid coffee drinker, but my coffee making routine is pretty simple. I have a Nespresso. And so really it does it for me. I mean, I just put it in the machine and it goes, but it's really about just focusing on that and nothing else. So making your coffee mindfully, drinking it mindfully, not doing something else at the same time. And if you notice that your thoughts are drifting, just gently bring your thoughts back. And sometimes it helps to narrate in your mind what you're doing. So I might say, okay, I'm picking this particular flavor pod. I'm putting it into the machine and now I'm sipping my coffee and taking some deep breaths. And if you notice yourself feeling overwhelmed during everyday stresses, if you can just back up and do a mindfulness activity for just a couple of minutes, it can make a huge difference in how you deal with the everyday problems of your life. So thank you so much for that question. I think it's super relatable. Jonathan, what's the next question we have? So the next question we have is from Sue Ann. She asked this question on Instagram. And I think this one sort of piggybacks on Rachel's question. And I really think everyone is having these same thoughts, especially while COVID is going on. Uh, Sue Ann says, my mental health is deteriorating and I feel like I am just making excuses and complaining. Wow, Sue Ann, that is a very, very good question because I think when there is so much negativity around us, it's easy to get discouraged and it's easy to start to complain. So she's definitely not alone in this, just like Jonathan said. And I think the most important thing is knowing that while it's good sometimes to vent and to talk about the negative things that are bothering you, it's also really helpful that you place a limit on that. So even if you are going to vent, give yourself a time limit. Now that sounds rigid, but it actually really helps. So if you're going to vent, give yourself 10 minutes, get it all out, you know, and then after that, you have to really guard your mind and your heart and allow yourself to only take in any kind of negative information that you need to 
in doses. And so a really good example of this is the current news. I mean, obviously there's a lot going on and sometimes people will spiral after watching two, three hours of the news. And I always say, put a limit on the negative information that you know you need to receive to stay informed, but then move on with your day. And so if Sue Ann feels like she's making excuses and complaining, it's fine to vent for a little bit, give yourself a time limit. But then after that, ask yourself, what is something that is very important to me today from a values perspective, not goals, but values. So what are the things that are truly important to me that I want people to remember me by that I want my life to stand for? And values are different from goals because you can't check them off a list. Values are things like community, spirituality, honesty, integrity. These are things that you want to live your life by. They're basically like life principles. And so think about what important value you want to honor today and then move on to do an activity that honors that value. So I hope that helps you in. You know, I want to pause here and just say that I'm getting a ton of information about how people have been struggling with negativity in general. And so that's why today's supercharged tip is going to be all about how to deal with your negative thoughts and how to think about them in a way that will help you get over them. Because sometimes people say, well, I don't want to just use positive thinking because it doesn't reflect reality. And none of the techniques that I'm going to be talking about is going to be about toxic positivity or pretending those negative thoughts aren't happening because sometimes things are really stressful. And so definitely stay tuned for today's supercharged tips because so many of the questions have been covering different aspects of negative thinking. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Rachel, what's our next question? Well, our next question is really interesting because I think it also relates to Sue Ann's question, which is about your mental health. And this is about your physical health from somebody named Love. And she's from Instagram. She asks this from Instagram and says, I have neck pain, back pain, shoulder pain, chronic pain almost every single day. What can I do to ease my suffering? Oh my goodness. Uh, it's so difficult when you have chronic pain and people don't understand, you know, when somebody has chronic pain, cause they may not look like they're really sick, but they're just constantly dealing with body aches all the time. And this is a very little known fact. Did you guys know that chronic pain is actually a type of symptom that can occur from unmanaged depression? There's a lot of people who actually feel depressed and then they express that emotional depression through body aches and it's real. So it's not that they're imagining these body aches they are actually having, for example, a higher sensitivity to pain and a lower pain threshold so that smaller pains will make them feel like they can't move. And it's not just subjective. It's actually something that is real. So 
Pain and depression oftentimes do go hand in hand. And also if you have chronic pain all the time, you might get depressed. And so you can see how there's a bi-directional relationship. CBT techniques can absolutely help with this. And my favorite technique to manage chronic pain is grounding. Now, grounding is just about making sure that you can stabilize yourself and anchor yourself to the surroundings that you have around you. And it sounds really simple, and it is. It's basically just about making contact with the physical objects around you so that you can feel more stabilized, stronger, and also bring attention to other aspects of your environment that are more positive than thinking about the chronic pain. So a really simple grounding technique is just to imagine yourself being anchored to the earth. And you can be doing this while you're standing or sitting, but just imagine that there's a root that's coming out of the ground and it's sort of a visualization technique and it's sort of spreading through your body. It's giving you strength while you're doing this, pay attention to how your body is feeling on the physical objects that you're sitting on or standing on. So really feel the ground below your feet, really feel the seat of the cushion that you're sitting on and just be attuned to your body in a certain way that helps you to realize that everything around you is real, it's present, and this not only decreases the feeling of chronic pain, but it also helps you to manage your pain better. And another great follow-up technique to this is just asking yourself what you're grateful for your body functions. So really ask yourself, what you're grateful for in terms of what your body can do for you. And even if you can only list one or two things off, it really just helps to change your mindset about how you view your body, not as something that's dysfunctional, but actually as something that gives you an ability to do the things that you really care about. Jonathan, what's our next question? Our next question is also from Instagram. It's from Sam. And I think you can really uh, provide some great insight for this. I know you wrote a book about how to stop self-sabotage. So Sam says, I experience crippling fear and it stops me from venturing out, doing things that are important to me, making new connections that will better my life. What suggestions do you have for Sam? Well, Sam's experience is common for people who experience social anxiety of some sort, or maybe they just have certain fears about being independent or being more assertive when they go out in the world and meet new people and do new things. And that fear is something that can be adaptive at times. You know, fear is a good emotion. Sometimes people hate the fact that they're fearful, but actually fear has an adaptive element because fear is evolutionary. It actually keeps us safe and it keeps us thriving. But sometimes fear takes over a bit too much. It's like that overprotective mother or grandmother or grandfather, and it stops you from doing the things that are really important to you. So when that happens, the switch kind of goes on and you basically become crippled with a fight or flight that you can't disengage. So the idea about dealing with crippling fear is twofold. The first thing that you should do is ask yourself why it's important for you to overcome this fear. I mean, if you're only saying that you have to overcome it because somebody else is doing something, it's on their bucket list and you want to do it, that might not be good enough of a reason. But if it's really rooted to something that you care about, like we talked about earlier, maybe an important value of yours, 
that gives you the motivation needed to confront that fear. And what we need to know about fear is that when you confront it, it gets better. The more that you avoid the feared object, the more your mind can go to these horrible places where basically you start to imagine the worst. And so it's about confronting your fear in small little steps. Recently, I just worked with a patient who has agoraphobia, which means that she's afraid of leaving her house. Now imagine in the pandemic that has gotten worse. And so we built what we call an anxiety hierarchy where she starts with something that she fears just a little, and then she lists a bunch of items all the way to her greatest fear. And she starts by confronting the one that she fears only a little while practicing relaxation strategies when she's facing that fear. So the first thing I had her do is just leave her house and go to the driveway, open her mailbox, get the mail and come back inside. And while she's doing that, she's taking deep breaths. Now, once she can do that and be able to calm herself down, then she goes to the next level, which is walking to the end of her street and walking back. And by doing things gradually, it helps you to confront the fear while using relaxation strategies that encourage you, you can overcome it. And after several weeks, she was able to go on a drive in her car. And you'll see this type of rapid progress if you keep up this sort of gradual exposure to your fear. That's a really interesting question. I think a super relatable one. Rachel, what's the next question? Okay. This is also from Instagram and this comes from Justin. How can I deal with insomnia? It's been getting worse during this pandemic. Oh my goodness. Um, this is a very, very good question at all times. I mean, sleep problems are so significant um, in our country, but also around the world. A lot of people have sleep issues, but I know that in the beginning of the pandemic, especially, I don't know if this happened to you guys, Rachel and Jonathan, but I had pandemic nightmares. Did you guys have these at all? Oh my, yes. <laughs> so many. I felt like I actually had the same dream over and over and over again, which I never do. Usually I just dream about cake. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think I spend a lot of time trying to determine really honestly what is real because I have no concept of time or reality <laughs> since quarantine has started. Yeah, totally. And actually, especially during the beginning, I was having all kinds of pandemic nightmares where, you know, they were just so hilarious. It would be me walking outside and being around people, not social distancing, but I forgot my mask, you know, just things like that. It was totally odd. But I do know that when there's a lot of stress and a lot of anxieties and just a lot of worries on people's mind, it can really disturb your sleep. Not to mention, most people are still working from home, so they're setting their own schedules and people are taking naps all over the place, but they're they're abusing naps. They're taking like three-hour naps in the afternoon and it actually messes with your sleep at night, right? So here's a couple of really good CBT tips to deal with insomnia. And the good news is there's a whole program of CBT called CBT for insomnia. So if you guys are interested in it, Google it. There's so many great books, self-help books that are written according to these principles, but here are some of my favorite ones. Okay. So one is you absolutely have to have a nighttime routine. I don't care who you are. You say you don't need it. You say that you can look at devices until the calcium home and you can fall right asleep after it does disturb your sleep. And so Make sure that you have at least a 30 minute nighttime routine where you start to wind down, put down devices, take your time getting ready for bed, and then do something relaxing that doesn't involve electronics, whether it's reading a book, having quiet conversation with loved ones, listening to relaxing music, 
whatever you want to do. So make sure you give yourself those 30 minutes. The second thing is people get really anxious in bed when they're laying there and then they're thinking, I can't go to sleep. They're looking at the clock and they're thinking, oh my gosh, two hours have passed. And now that only leaves me four hours to sleep. And then you start to associate the bed with anxiety. And we don't want that. That's a big principle in CBT is that there's associations that our minds make. So you don't want your bed to be associated with stress. So if you notice that you haven't been able to fall asleep and it's been 20 to 30 minutes, don't worry about it. Stop watching the clock. Just get out of bed and in some dim light, do some relaxing activities, and then don't get back into bed until you actually feel pretty tired. I say that you should be an eight out of 10 on a tired scale. So just ask yourself, how tired am I? 10 means if I went to bed right now, I'd literally just fall right asleep. And one would be I'm wide awake. Don't climb back into bed until you're at an eight. And third, think positively. People think, oh my gosh, I only got three hours of sleep. Now my day's going to suck. Well, guess what? The research shows that you can make up your sleep in the next day or two. So please do not worry if you had bad sleep for one night, you can in the next couple of days, try to have a little bit better quality sleep. And if you are going to nap, the research says don't nap for more than 30 minutes because then it starts to mess with your nighttime cycles and it can actually disturb your sleep at night. So make sure you set an alarm for that power nap. Wow. We got through a lot of questions so far. The next question is actually one of my favorite topics, which is procrastination. Is that right, Jonathan? It is. So the first question about procrastination comes from Twitter. Uh, Jack sent this in and I feel like Jack climbed in my brain and dug this out and asked this for me (laughs) because I do this myself. So I am very looking forward to what you have to say. He says, I have terrible issues with procrastination. I keep telling myself I can do my best work last minute, but I've been burned a few times already. Why won't I learn? Well, Jack, your question is so good, so relatable. And I have told many people already that when people ask me, well, why did you write the book Stop Self-Sabotage? I said, well, everybody does it sometimes. And then of course, the next follow-up question is, well, have you done it? I'm like, of course, especially in my 20s, procrastination was my thing. And it came from this place where just like Jack, I was telling myself that I needed that extra pressure to do my best work. But of course, then I got burned and I did finally learn. But it's hard sometimes to unlearn it. And I think one of the things that Jack is probably experiencing and people don't realize about people who procrastinate is that oftentimes people who procrastinate are actually perfectionists and they don't want to get started on something until they feel like they've got everything taken care of. They've dotted their I's, crossed their T's. They can see the entire way forward. And so when there's a really big project, people who tend to procrastinate, but are actually perfectionists, they don't want to get started because they don't want to mess it up. And then of course, by the very end, when there's no time anymore, then kind of all of that overthinking is dumped out of their brains and just trying to do their work. But again, as we mentioned, sometimes it means that you ran out of time. So the biggest thing in terms of what to do when you find yourself wanting to procrastinate 
is that you have to break down the project into smaller pieces. And this is a great CBT technique, which is really about setting what we call SMART goals. So SMART goals are goals that are more specific. They're more tangible. So if you have a huge project, it feels like there's a lot to do. So SMART goals helps you to break it down into chunks that feel more manageable. S stands for specific. So really be specific about the tasks that you need to do, right? And I think that sometimes people have this big lofty goal and they don't define it any further. And that's actually what ends up getting them into trouble. So make sure that you split up your big goal into several small ones. And M stands for measurable. So is there a way when you know that you finish this task, you know, be really, really definite about what kind of evidence you need to know that this particular medium goal is done. A is attainable. Again, give yourself enough time to do these tasks. Sometimes we overestimate how quickly we're going to get to do something. And so just make sure that you start to get better at that. One of my favorite techniques in terms of how to overcome this is to actually write down how long I think I'm going to take to get do something and then see how long it actually takes me. And that makes me get better at really setting the A of a SMART goal. And I think that it's also important to mention that procrastination happens because we're not realistic about our timelines and what we need to do. So really ask yourself, can I realistically achieve it? And do I need help from somebody to do this? And finally, T is time-based. So give yourself a time frame to finish this goal. Uh, I'm going to finish it in the next hour. I'm going to finish it Wednesday by 12. Really be definite about it. And the last thing, which is not part of SMART goals, but is important to tell you guys about, is to stay accountable. So you might have to tell somebody about your goal so that they can also keep you honest. And that type of external uh, validation is actually very important sometimes when we tend to procrastinate. If we just tell somebody like an accountability buddy, it really does help us to manage that better. And if all else fails, Jack, I think one of the things that's really helpful is Pomodoros. I've talked about this a lot. It means that you just set in a timer for 25 minutes and you only do one thing because no matter how much you dread doing something, everybody can do something for 25 minutes. And that's actually my favorite of doing the chores that I hate doing. It's like, okay, let me just set a timer for 25 minutes and just get it done. So I hope that helps and totally understand where you're coming from. So Rachel, I want to talk a little bit about people who deal with negative beliefs and possibly even addictive behaviors. I know that we had a couple of questions about that. Can you tell me one of them? Absolutely. Um, Damon from Facebook has a really good one. Um, He asks, is there a way CBT can help curb addictive behaviors? I think I have a slight video gaming problem and I've been playing more and more in the past few weeks. It's hard to stop and I'm neglecting my other responsibilities and work is starting to pile up. Well, a lot of times people use addictive behaviors as a way to avoid dealing with the problems of their life. It makes so much sense, right? Because it gives us just a little break from dealing with the real problems of the world. And if we go all the way back to Freudian terms, there's actually all kinds of defense mechanisms that sometimes the human mind enacts when we're under stress. And one of them is called regression, which means that you go back to a time where things were simple. So you start to do very childlike things. Video games is absolutely my favorite way to distract myself from problems too. So I totally understand Damien's point of view here. But obviously at some point it gets to be 
addictive and it gets to a point where perhaps you're neglecting the things that you need to do. And that's when you know it's a problem. So I want to say that it's not that all escapist coping strategies are bad. It's that they should be used sparingly. We all need to escape sometimes. This is why right now what I'm watching is Cobra Kai on Netflix. Like I just don't want to deal with the real world problems at the end of the day because I've had a very busy day and I just need to unwind at night and I want to just be drifted off into a world where the biggest problem is these two rivaling dojos. (laughs) But I think we all have to be careful about how long we utilize these escapist coping strategies. And so for Damien, I think if he really feels like this is becoming more of an addictive process and definitely seek professional help, but if he thinks that he's on the verge and he might be able to pull himself back, then it's really about what we call picking a competitive behavior. And so a competitive or competing behavior is just about adopting something that's a bit more helpful that will stop you from playing the video games. And so it can be anything. If you notice that you've been playing video games for an hour, it's about doing a competing activity that will prevent you from also playing the video game. So it might be, you know, straightening up a small area of your room. It might be working on a puzzle instead. It might be picking up the phone and calling a friend and walking away from your video gaming station. But it's really about selecting an activity that you can go to when you realize that the addictive behaviors are taking too long out of your day. So we've talked a lot about the use of timers. It is important to do that. I mean, Damien could consider using Pomodoro's what we just talked about, setting a timer for 25 minutes. And then when that timer's up, immediately go to a competing activity, something else that is productive that he needs to do. And so I think it's important that Damien takes some time to think about what other types of behaviors could actually get in the way of him playing video games. So it wouldn't help, for example, if his competing behavior is just, you know, drinking some water because, you know, drinking water, you can drink water and play video games at the same time. So it has to be a behavior that will take you out of that video game space. And if he thinks that the problem is getting worse than that, then definitely seek professional help and support because a therapist can help you implement some more advanced cognitive behavioral strategies to help curb these issues. So I want to talk about negative core beliefs. I got a lot of questions about this, but a really common one, um, is one that I got from an anonymous source. So can we talk about that one next? I think that that would be really, really important, Jonathan. Okay, so this question would be, how do I deal with the crippling core belief of I am worthless? I feel stupid and weak and I beat myself up. Jonathan, this is such a common question that I get from people because we are so mean in our self-talk that if we said the stuff that we said to ourselves out loud, people would be shocked. I know people who have told me, I don't even tell my therapist what I really think about myself on the inside, because when I speak it out loud, it sounds so ridiculous, but we do that to ourselves sometimes. And you know, one, one common reason why people do that is because they're trying to motivate themselves. But you know, if you fill your brain with all of those negative thoughts about yourself, you are going to start to believe it. And then it leads to self-fulfilling prophecies and self-defeating behaviors. But a lot of times people develop these core beliefs and core beliefs in CBT is the concept that you discovered about yourself, possibly when you were really young, you know, interacting with the world um, and really learning who you were, how people treat you. Sometimes it comes from parents. It comes from other important adults in your life, the experiences that you've had, um, 
when you were a child are especially prominent in forming our core beliefs because it's the first time that we're really learning how the world works and how people perceive us. And so this idea of I am worthless, when we talk about core beliefs, it means that it kind of permeates everything that you do. So this particular type of belief can come up in relationships, at work, with friends, with family. And generally, these negative core beliefs don't come up unless you're under a lot of stress. Obviously, if you're having a great day, it's almost like they're non-existent. But as soon as you have a bad day, our minds have this propensity to go and blame ourselves and say something that is so destructive to the way that we're going to be able to, you know, tackle the rest of our day when we have this thought that is floating around in our minds. And so the way that we deal with core beliefs is to actually look for evidence to the contrary. Oftentimes our minds will just confirm what we already think. It's sort of a shortcut that our mind makes because there's so much to deal with in the day. And so it's sort of that self-fulfilling prophecy when you have a negative core belief and it's almost like you're only looking for evidence from people in the environment that would confirm that, but it takes conscious effort to actually look for evidence against that core belief. So I think this is a really big piece of the puzzle is if you have this crippling core belief, I am worthless, play devil's advocate, ask yourself, well, can I at least pinpoint one situation that's happened in the last few days where I wasn't worthless, where I was worthwhile? I provided value to somebody. Um, I contributed to my community. And really challenge yourself to find this contradicting evidence. And it's important that you actually write it down because otherwise your mind will just forget it. So actually write it down, whether it's in a journal, a piece of scrap paper, whatever you need to do. But whenever you come up with a crippling core belief, ask yourself, what's some evidence that is against this core belief? Can I point something out that's happened in the last few days that would dispel this core belief? And over time, you'll see that the core belief it starts to crumble. It doesn't hold up anymore. It's, it's not a totality of your experience. In fact, it only applies maybe to perhaps some really negative childhood experiences that you've had, perhaps to one or two people in your life, but it is not all of you. And so core beliefs are a extremely difficult thing to unpack, but little by little, if you can just ask yourself, get used to this idea of asking yourself, what's the evidence to the contrary, you will start to break it down and have more positive beliefs about yourself. So the last Q&A that I did was all about relationship questions. And obviously that's on everyone's mind right now. So Rachel, what's our next question? Well, the next question we have is from Josh um, from Instagram. He asks, I have difficulty trusting people. I've been burned a lot in the past. How can I start making positive connections again? Rachel, I think that that is such a good question. I talk to so many people about trust issues and that can really impact the way that they go about their relationships, particularly the ones that are more intimate, you know, whether it's a best friend or a romantic relationship, that's where the trust issues come back up. And so sometimes people just become really overprotective of themselves and they start to close themselves off to anyone. And of course that isn't a great way to go about it because then you end up never getting evidence that maybe perhaps a few people in this world can indeed be trusted. And then you can heal from the trauma of your past when you've been burned. So I think the most important thing is you should take it slow. Sometimes I find that people rush too much 
into a relationship, particularly romantic ones. And I think this has to do perhaps with attachment. You know, sometimes people, they really need that human connection. We all do. And so then they kind of rush into something a little too quickly. And then the person turns out to be untrustworthy. Well, then that just basically then creates that cycle where you say, aha, see, I knew I couldn't trust people. So it's really about gradually honing your intuition and taking time. And specifically with romantic relationships, don't go too fast. Go on one date, take a couple days, think about how that went. Enjoy the fact that you're in this sort of mode where you're in the honeymoon period of getting to know somebody. It's fun, but don't get so caught up. Just take time to really think about what you'd like to do next and start to trust people a little bit at the a time. I think that sometimes people just go way too far in too quickly, or they write people off right away, but instead take a more gradual approach. It's really, really important that you reestablish your trust slowly over time, as opposed to thinking that one person can also be your savior. So that would be the next follow-up tip is really think about a few different people that you can trust in your life and how to work with them what types of things that you like to trust them with. And little by little, you will find that there are some people you truly can trust. And then the people that you can't, sometimes people are just in your life for a season. There's a reason that they were in your life. Perhaps it's to show you something about your life, but you should also feel okay with saying goodbye to those people. So I wish you the best of luck, Josh. I feel like we should do a whole episode on attachment because I think that's a really important topic that really affects how we go about our relationships. Jonathan, what's the next question? So the next question is another anonymous question. And I think anybody who's been in a relationship, including myself, knows that sometimes your partner has these little things about them that get on your nerves. So I think this will help a lot of people. Uh, This person said... Why do I get so angry every time my partner shows up late when I know this is how he is? I expect him to change because he knows how much it bothers me and he doesn't. I get upset every single time. This is a great question. I think it's really a question that has a two-part explanation. I mean, the first part is this person has already mentioned to their partner this is very important to me and the partner is still not changing their behavior. So it makes them feel bad. Like, if I was important to you, you would make more of an effort. And so I totally understand that frustration. And I wonder if they've tried to communicate that to their partner. I think that they really need to try to make sure that their partner hears how important it is. And sometimes when you're being critical of someone's behavior, they're not going to hear what's underneath, which is this is a very important value for me. And even if you can't be perfect every time, I need to see improvement because it makes me know that you care about me and that you love me. And so if they haven't said it in such certain terms, they really should, because sometimes people don't realize it because everybody's values are different. We've been talking about values a couple of times during this podcast episode. And what's very important to you might not be important to someone else. And I certainly know that I've had friends like this where they'll show up somewhere 35 minutes late because being timely isn't important to them. But then we'll have a conversation and I'll say, you know, it's fine if you're five to 10 minutes late, but 35 minutes, that's a long time. You know, could you, could we maybe try to meet in the middle? This is very important to me. And 
I think once they realize that it really does impact you, people who care about you, they'll at least make an effort, even if they can't be perfect all the time. But secondly, I think it's important to check yourself and ask yourself why this bothers you so much. So sometimes there's other things that are underneath that you haven't really gotten to. And it's just about this behavior. You think that it's all about just the being late, but perhaps a deeper issue is that you believe your partner is inconsiderate in general. And if that's the case, that's what you really need to work on because this is just a symptom of that deeper problem. And so really 99% of all relationship issues are things that deal with communication. So I would encourage this person to approach their partner and really let them know why this is so important to them. If there is a bigger underlying issue, don't be afraid to discuss it. Improving your communication will make your relationship more satisfying every single time. So you need to feel like you can be open with your partner and communicate. And one tip I love to give is this idea of reflective listening. So have your partner say a few things and then say, let me stop you and let me try to summarize what I think I heard. Because oftentimes misperceptions happen and you don't even realize it. And before you know it, both of you guys are getting riled up. So it's important to stop and summarize what the other person's saying and then ask them, did I get it correct? And if the perception isn't correct, they can then say, well, that's not quite right. This is what I meant. And if you can start having more difficult dialogue using this reflective listening, it's going to help you manage your conflicts in a much more proactive way that leads to good solutions. So I want to get to the supercharged secret of the day, which is all about dealing with negative thinking. But before I go to that, Rachel and Jonathan, what did you guys think about these questions today and these tips? What I love today is everything you said and all of the questions were really relatable, but the SMART goals, I love that acronym, SMART. And I actually, during the break, I wrote it out on an index card and I wrote it twice and I'm going to give one to each of my kids and I'm going to keep this one. And I thought that was fantastic advice. So thank you so much. Dr. Judy, thank you so much. I mean, for me, I think what Justin said about how to deal with insomnia, especially during the pandemic, I mean, I'm working from home now all the time. So for me, it's like work and home are both the same place. So I find myself really not ever keeping up with the time. And when I get sleepy, if I have a little bit of a break from work, I can, you know, go to my bedroom and take a nap. And I know you said, you know, to watch how long you take those naps because then they can disrupt your whole sleep cycle. So that's definitely one thing I'm going to watch. Um, also, I'm really bad about if I can't go to sleep at night. I just sort of lay there and try to force myself to go to sleep. So if I find myself laying in bed and I can't go back to sleep, uh, I'll do like you said, I'll try to get up, do something else. And then when I feel myself get to that sort of eight out of 10 number to sleep, then I'll go back and try it again. And then I'll just send you an email and let you know if it worked. Yeah, I would love to hear how this works for you. And Rachel, how Smart Goals works for you. But thank you guys for sharing what you guys liked about today's tips. So I want to talk about the three ways to transform your thoughts. I'm not talking about toxic positivity. I am talking about truly ways that can transform the negative thinking that holds you back because CBT says thoughts, feelings, 
and actions all relate to one another. So when you have really negative thoughts, it can impact how you feel for the day and it can impact how you behave and it can actually take your day off the rails. And so we want to stop that. We want to be able to still be able to transform your thinking in a realistic fashion that can get you back on track and living your best life today. So the first type of technique is to get used to questioning your thoughts. Thoughts do not equal the truth. The average person has over 50,000 thoughts in a given day. Obviously we're not giving all of those thoughts equal well, wait. So the thoughts that you have are not always reflective of reality. And so one really good technique is to do something that I call examine the evidence. So this is where you write down on a piece of paper, evidence for on one side and evidence against on the other side, and actually look for evidence that other people can confirm. So let's say you have a negative thought. I am a failure. Ask yourself, what are the things that have happened realistic things that have happened, actions, things that people can observe that might tell me this thought is true. So perhaps that person would write down something like, well, I made a mistake yesterday at work and I got reprimanded. Okay. What about ideas that would be evidence against that particular belief? Well, perhaps a person might write, well, I recently got a promotion. So that would tell me that I'm actually doing quite well at work. Um, and I was recently complimented by a customer on how well I took care of their case. Right? So once you actually write down the evidence for and evidence against, you'll notice that perhaps your thoughts were not truly accurate, not truly balanced and not truly completely reflective of the picture. So then you move on to the second way to transform your thoughts, which is to modify these negative thoughts that might've been biased. And my favorite technique is the yes, but technique. So this would be creating a new thought that would have the form. Yes, fill in the blank, but fill in the blank. And what we do here is we say, yes, recognize something that's not going so well, but recognize something that is going well, or is something that you've done so that this is a work in progress and that it's going to get better. So one example could be, yes, I did spend the weekend binging on video games, but I have gone a whole week being able to utilize the Pomodoro technique and only playing 25 minutes of video games a day, right? So it's really about recognizing something that's not going so well and also recognizing your efforts in improving a behavior. Yes, I got into another needless argument with my partner, but we have both been working very hard on improving our communication and things have been better than the past, right? So get used to modifying your thoughts using this yes, but technique. Finally, the last type of tip to transform your thoughts is to de-emphasize the impact of your negative thinking. Sometimes negative thoughts are truly reflective of what's going on. You may be incredibly stressed and you may be feeling very overwhelmed and it's hard for you even after doing the questioning your thoughts and modifying them to really feel like you have a handle on your negative thinking. And that's when you can utilize this type of technique, which is to de-emphasize the impact that your negative thoughts have on your feelings and on your actions. And my favorite technique in this area is called labeling. It's literally just adding a tiny little clause to the negative thought that you're having. And the tiny little clause is I'm having the thought that. So 
If you have a negative thought, like I'm a failure, that sounds very definitive. It sounds like it's happening. It sounds like it defines you. But if you add the clause, I'm having the thought that, notice what that does to the original thought. I'm having the thought that I'm a failure. All of a sudden you're naming it just as a mental event. I'm just having a thought that this is happening, but it doesn't mean that it's happening. And another related technique in this area is just to write down your negative thought on a piece of paper and then stick it in your pocket. And the idea is I'm writing the thought down. It's not part of me. It's something that's tangible and separate of me, but I can have this thought. It can even be in my pocket, but I'm still going to go about doing my day the way that I want and pursuing the things that are important to me. And if that negative thought pops up again, I just tell myself, oh, I know it's there. I already wrote it down. It's in my pocket, but that's not going to stop me from doing the things that I really find important in terms of bringing fulfillment and authenticity to my life. So I really hope those techniques help you to manage the negative thoughts that can come up in your life. Tell me how it's going for you. I would love to hear from you. So I want to do another Q&A episode again soon. So hit me up on social media. Let me know what you would like to hear next and what questions I can answer for you. And just a reminder that this is an educational podcast, so I'm not providing any psychological treatment advice through this medium. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. And if you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends and take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. I'm Dr. Judy, and remember, any time is a great time to supercharge your life.